0: this is the championship clubs podcast the show that shines a light on English rugby's second flight join us every fortnight and check us out on the socials at champ clubs pod on Instagram and Twitter this is the championship clubs podcast and I am bereft of my usual co-host today Ben Gunher as you meant as we mentioned on the last show recently became a father of twins and uh, as such his life it means that he's unable to join us today on the on this fine evening and uh, to talk championship rugby however in his place. we have got a very capable deputy. He's uh, the chief operations officer and very important man down at Bedford Blues and, uh, long term, well, I wouldn't say support, long term organiser and the driving force behind this show. Uh, Gareth Oran, it's, uh, it's good to have you on. How are things down at Goldington
1: Road? Yeah, all good. Pleasure to be back with you, Mike. Um, I will be a very poor deputy for Gully. Um, but, uh, yeah, really good. Kicked off pre-season. Uh, nice win over Rotherham. So, um, but good to see them guys. And, uh, the rivalry that exists there, but yeah, looking forward to a new season. Been lots going on uh, well they're at, at Golden Road, not necessarily in the champ. I'm sure we'll come on to that.
0: Yeah, and, and just before I get into introducing, I guess there seems to have been a bit of an action, action this week. It's nice to see, uh, you know, the, the new season in, in touch in distance and uh, have championship. will be back as the excitement building down your end.
1: Yeah, definitely it does feel like it's only last week that we were playing in some ways. It comes around quickly, doesn't it? Every off season, but. Um, yeah, I think the champ looks fairly strong. We all know about the the player issues, but what that's mean is a massive player pool uh, for Tier Two. So, um yeah, it's been interesting. Some early results. I think the league at the top end is going to be very tough, but at the uh, everywhere else, I think the combination of parts on rugby has meant that it's uh, it's going to be fiercely competitive every fixture this season.
0: Moving on, today's guest. Then uh, I'm really excited. A man whose uh, expertise off the field are famed is obviously you've been well connected and spoke around sort of several tub- uh, topics around sort of rugby commercial at the moment. you were a previous director and CEO at Melbourne Storm and the Western Force and Harlequins before that and now keeping your time busy as a director of Capacity Consulting. Mark Evans, it's a pleasure to have you join us here on the Championship podcast. How, how are things?
2: Oh, good, thanks. Yeah, thanks
0: for, thanks for asking me on. Um, very kind of you. No, it's, it's our pleasure. And I'll dive right in. Obviously, a man who spent a lot of time at the in the upper echelon of the game. What What's your familiarity with our our league that we love so fondly on this show? What's your experience or even perception of the championship? Be as honest as you like. We're, we're thick-skinned
2: on this show. <laughs> um, I well, yeah, I yeah. lots of friends who playing it, working it, whatever. Um, and I suppose through most of my playing career I suppose I played most of my games at that equivalent level but I I it shows how well I started playing before leagues were playing you know so there we are it only came in the last couple of years of my career in 87 um but <clears throat> I do think that the the whole like a number of other things about in you know, our beloved game in uh, in England um the second tier as I I sort of tend to call it because I think it's easier then to make comparisons to other countries and other sports, which I think is helpful. Uh, is a really critical level uh, for all professional sports. It's also really difficult. Sports wrestle with this. The thing that always has struck me about the second tier is every sport ends up having to have some kind of second tier. I think the key question you've got to ask yourself is, what's its function? because i suppose in some countries in some sports the sport is big enough and that just means the market's big enough there's enough people who will go out and pay money to make a second tier or whatever size viable so for example football in this country the championship although nobody makes any money is is a thr- is a very viable competition. You know, you've got some big clubs there, got a lot of investment. They're all trying to reach the promised land of the premiership and stay there or become a yo-yo club like Fulham or Norwich. You know, you can see what's happening there. It's a really, really difficult thing to get right for your particular sport in your particular country. And in this country, our, my personal view would be, we've again made a significant error, in my view, whereby we tend to look at our national sport, football, and say, "Well, what what, what have they got? Oh, well, we'll do that." Man. And that's a huge mistake because football has got such a much bigger market than every other sport. You know, look at look at rugby league. They've got exactly the same issue that rugby league got. Only possibly even more pertinent. No, maybe not. Quite similar. What do you do with the second tier of rugby league now at the moment they sort of go well we're sort of mixture of part-time and full-time and and you know some of it are in quite large towns and some of it in very small not much more than villages i mean featherstone are a phenomenon you know you know is, is Lee, you know a suburb of wigan which is a bit harsh i know but you know in in the same borough i know it's a completely different town i'm being slightly sort of uh, I'm still in Bedford. Well, well there, there, there you may you may well I'm sure you would say that. Uh, um but you know is that really adding very much? And, and actually you talk to a lot of clubs at that level. and so look, we never want we don't want to be, we're not big enough. We never we, we can never be, we can never aspire even to promotion because we're never gonna be big enough that our market's not big enough. The only way we could ever be competitive there is somebody who writes a huge check every year and just keeps going. Now, are there some examples of clubs where that happened for so long and they kept it going? Yeah, there are. Cast is, is a good example. Cast is a 40,000 town just outside Toulouse. They've won the Bouclier. They nearly won again this year. They didn't they get to the final, I think they did, uh, got beat um, by Montpellier. Um, Cast are a are a very small town, and you know they have eight thousand people, which is a lot given it's such a small town. Eight thousand people, so there's a bit of a difference. But eight thousand. But the only reason they can ever keep competing is because they were owned by a guy, a guy called Pierre Fabre, who uh, uh, who owned fabre Laboratoire. He was from Cast. He bankrolled the club for years, and before he died, he set up a trust or an endowment that allowed a revenue stream to come off it every year, which allows cats to still run a budget that allows her to compete with much, much bigger. The romantic in me thinks that's great and, and fantastic, but it ain't anywhere to run a league, and you certainly can't organise your structure on 15 Philippe they, they They just don't exist. So France is interesting. You look at the top 14 in France, there aren't many small towns left. You know, if you go back to when I was here, you know, when I was a lad, you know, the, the, the top, the top, whatever it was, actually, it was the top 40, would you believe, back in the 80s. But never we won't go down that route. But, you know, you had places like um, Narbonne, Bézier, uh, Mollema, Saint-Dax, Aix, Oaks uh, Aux and uh, Agen and these places. They were small, tended to be in the southwest and they were, they, they could win it. The number of clubs like that in the top 14 today is tiny. Breve are an extraordinary club, an extraordinary club, who go up and down, up and down, up and down with 50,000 people, where rugby's a religion, and it's incredibly remote. They just about hang on. Agenda, but you look at all the big city teams who've come in, who were never in the top Lyon, the Lyon Project's back. Montpellier. Toulon, La Rochelle, everyone says, oh, small town. Yeah, go and have a look at the region. Go and have a look at the population of the region. So what do you do in England when the market isn't so big? And, and, and my view would be, and this is really unpopular view, of course, uh, my view would be that you, you close the premiership off, you put l- far more funding than currently you have in the championship, and it has a clear reason and purpose which is about which is development of players and coaches and referees and officials and there's no relegation from there either by the way so you you actually seal off both and if there is then a, a team that really genuinely feels in five years or it's made probably five yearly intervals that they want to make an application to go up because they think they've got the infrastructure and they've got the fan base and they've got everything else, fine. I mean, I always use this example. In 1996, two leagues were born. One was MLS soccer in the States and one was Premiership rugby, 96, 97. And we both started with 12 teams. And one is an open league and one is a closed league. And I know this is not the only reason. There are other... Of course. But it's a big it's a significant reason. Which is the open league, Mark? The Open League is the over most of its history is the premiership. We've had pro, we've had promotional relegation in and out of the premiership far, far more years in 25 than we than we haven't. And we've still got twelve. Well, all right. A Ridiculous 13 number. I mean, make your mind up really, you know, come on. Um, you're either twelve or you're 14 or you're 10, but 13 is a ludicrous number. Um, but basically no growth. And the MLS are at 32. So the evidence around the world is closed leagues grow the sport better. It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. But it, they, in my opinion, they grow it. And so let me give you an, and then I'll show up. And I'll give you an example from another sport. So the NRL uh, and the league I know well are expanding next year. There's a new team, the 17th team. And it's the franchise has been awarded to Redcliffe, who are from Queensland. Redcliffe Dolphins, they're gonna be called. And they've been been—they—they they won the tender, they've got two years to prepare. They're in the Queensland Cup. That's where they are. They're in the Queensland Cup. The salary cap in the Queensland Cup is 400,000, no, when it has gone up now. that. I think it might be $600,000. So that's 300,000 pounds, okay? But because they had built the ground quite well, they've they got a lot of investment, they've got people who are prepared to come and invest, They've got a good junior program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They won the bid. So this idea that you close off a league and no one else can ever get in it is simply not borne out by events. I mean, that just isn't true. Whereas what we've done, and it looks like it might be happening again now, who I hope not with Worcester and Wasps, but our, you look at some of the great rugby clubs, and I know a lot of it was in the early days, but even you know London Welsh, Leeds, heading Liam Rante, hey, really, I suppose. Mosley, West Hartlepool, Oral, Wakefield. Wakefield haven't even got a club anymore. So, you know, these, they actually don't exist. Now, part of that was teething troubles at the beginning and all the rest of it, but the hard fact of the matter is not enough people at the moment in this country, like Rugby Union enough, to financially make a second tier viable but you've got to have one so you've got to, in my view you've got to come up with a different model because simply saying one up one down or two up two down and you know because you know i just don't think it's been shown to be a very way good way of running it so let's dive into that a little bit mark and
1: just just kind of i think we went on a tour to france we went around the world and globe and we we've kind of got this nugget and i know what you think needs to happen and i know it's that well i don't want to use the word ring fencing and i'm sure mike's going to have a retort and and an opinion over that kind of closed structure um but i can see the merits in it um for those that aren't familiar as well from the championship that just probably extend your connection a little bit further with your your work obviously with cornish pirates over the years and your links to them Obviously at Saracen's head coach, DOR, CEO, and as they came up and through it. And in fact, we probably at Quinn's the year they got relegated as CEO. Mm. So um, I, I guess just to add to that piece is to drill down into how that model would work and I guess why it would work. Because you know, the examples you've you've taught, and we'll we'll get into the detail of it, have been based predominantly around, I would say, in your question of is it an open or closed league. Um, I would say it already mm. is closed. It happened the minute that it became a, a cartel run by those member clubs and that you now need to pay £20 million to have P shares and now compete in it. And therefore, if you're London Welsh and you get promoted and you're told you have to go to the CASM and play there and lose even more money every month than you did already, um, albeit those sums now seem quite minor compared to the reported sums at Worcester and Watts, is how does that work? for the clubs, one, with ambitions to get there and two, would we see more lapses from the clubs above in terms of administration or in terms of maybe not performing as entertaining rugby as possible because I agree on the development structure. I agree that play, you know, the championship as tier two is very much a development league for the best players to go all the way through the system and hopefully play for England one day or Wales in my case and your case but you know, for me, that is that structure. So, how do we make
2: that happen? I think you can actually. Um, I, I'm an eternal optimist, and I do think you can. I, I do think that there's a there's a lot wrong with the Premiership, and I've been on record many, many times about. One of, and one of the things that's wrong with the Premiership is, and it's what happens when people come under financial pressure. The P-share idea. I was on the board, and that idea was float first came across. And and was put into practice. And it was largely uh, a way of creating something you could borrow against. It was to create an asset. Because at the time, many of the clubs didn't hadn't built out their grounds. And, and part, and we certainly at Quinn's, when we did a well, I'm in my uh, my time there, we did a sort of four-stage building program, and we used the P shares to get some debt. Okay, so let, let's not, you know, there's not. I totally accept your point, which I will come to address about the what appears to be the inherent unfairness of it of the system. But let's sort it's not all. It's it's more nuanced than that. A number of clubs along the way have used that to basically use collateral to get some borrowing to build and to invest into facilities. As the P shares have got more and more valuable, and they have because they're a, they're a claim on the central revenues of the league. The argument that is put forward, which I don't altogether agree with, but the argument that's put forward is, well, look, we've created that value. We have lost, in the case of Worcester, for example, to date, £65 million pounds since they've been in the premiership. Right now, that's partly not under different regimes, you know, Cecil, the Allen family, and now the current owners. Right, it's been spread, you know, and others... Where they've been known by the same person all all the way through. Harlequins haven't changed ownerships in '97, right? And the cumulative losses there are quite high. I think they're about 45 or something. And saying, so, "Well, look, we've invested or lost, call it what you like, those huge sums of money. You only do that if you're going to create, if you hope to do that to create some value. And that's the other argument for P shares. It says we have invested millions and millions and millions of pounds." And this is one of the few things that is actually now worth something that you can borrow against. Or, and here's the last bit of it, and then I'll come on to the what I think of the weaknesses. If all things go, if you decide to cash your chips in, like Leeds did, all right? Give it a go. Really well run club, by the way. You know, I I I think Gary Heatherington is probably the. If he's not in the, he's not the best, he's certainly the best three rugby administrators in this country, and his track record is fantastic. You know, they, in the end, gave it a go and said, not for us anymore. OK, we just don't think this can be done. I have a lot of sympathy with that because I tried to do the same with the rugby league at Harlequin. Right. And, and we cut the, uh, an incredibly sweetheart deal to see if we could make it work, if they could make it work. Great owner, great staff, really good team. well, very good team, not a, not a grand final winning team, but a good mid-table team. There just wasn't a market. There just was not a market. People did not want to come and watch them and they did all the right things. So in the end, Leeds rhinos came to the same conclusion or Leeds tykes or whatever they were. And they said, look, this isn't for us now. So what do they do? Well, they cashed in the P shares. So at least when they left, they left with a with the windfall. They didn't anyway match all the money they put in over the 10 years or the 12 years, but it mitigated it. Where I have a problem with it is that I wouldn't link distribution to it, okay? I'd change the nature of the share component because I would, I would, I would keep the asset value for the for the owners of the P shares, but I wouldn't link the distribution to that. That's actually quite tricky technically, but I'm sure there's a way it could be done because what it now acts for is obviously, if you do have promotion and relegation, which of course I don't want, what I want is managed expansion, But let's say we went from 12 to 14 in five years time or in 10 years time and went through a tender process and the two most overall promising teams, and that's across a wide range of criteria, come up and they're up for at least five years. I would give them an equal distribution. right? But you're only going to get that if the revenues of the league as a whole will go up, because let's be realistic, 12 teams aren't suddenly going to vote for less. They might, however, vote for the same if the trend of revenues keeps increasing. And that way, you can finance a 13th and a 14th team. I would love to get to a position where you get to 16. You don't have to play each other home and away. You can play each other home or away. you know, or, or you put it into conferences or whatever. You can do anything you like. But you don't need to play each other home and away. There's loads and loads of, well, Six Nations. That's not a bad competition, is it? They don't play home and away. You know, there's a a disadvantage every year. One team sometimes play three home games and some teams play two. It's not an even competition. Nobody cares because it's a great tournament. So my argument would be run the championship as a development competition, fund it better because it's in everybody's interest to fund it better. And where does that better funding come from? Well, if you could sell the premiership, and I think, Maybe you could, actually, and now might not be a bad time to do it. If you can sell the premiership and the idea, look, you need a development league. You've all got too many players under contract. right? You can't give enough games to some of your youngsters. Okay, You're you're running running large squads with large costs for the what-if scenario. What if we get an injury crisis? What if we get a load of people called up for England? It's a whole what-if thing. There ought to be a much, much better, if we had a better second tier, right? So I'll, I'll give you another example, right? So we we had 30 players at Storm and 17 play every week, and then about five or six were always injured. So we had six players. What do we do? Well, we had a we had a we had what we call a partner team in the Queensland Cup. And we used to fly six people up to Queensland every weekend. And they had a coach, just a coach, just for them. And, I, and when I was there, it was Anthony who who's now coaching in England. But that's, that's, that's just by the pie, right? But his job was to look after the development of the players who weren't playing in the 17 on the weekend. Okay? If we then needed somebody, because we, had, we really did have an injury crisis, they all got pulled back. Right? And then, we used to, and then we used to take, if we needed another couple, we took another couple from our feeder team. It wasn't a feeder team. It was a partner team. And... I I do get frustrated with rugby people who say, Oh, but what about this? I said, Do you not think other sports have thought of this? They've had exactly the same problems. They've just come up with much, much better models of solutions. I think what I struggle with, Mark, is that,
1: that 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 is happening a lot of that. And the problem is consistently, it's not linked to funding. We're solving other people's issues. So obviously we've had, you know, we've had a dual reg with, well, Leicester Tigers with Saracens now. We have a formal agreement and, and strategy with Northampton Saints. Leicester have partnered with Nottingham. Sarries with Ampthill. Harlequins feel like they're taking over Scottish, but who knows? You you may know more. But again, we're doing it because we're adjusting and we're adapting to the economic climate of us receiving, actually, I was going to say 159,000, but it'll be less now because we're to share it with 12 clubs. Oh, and by the way, the Championship accept that rather than, as you said, PRL would never accept lesser amount. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter when it's that little, I suppose. Anyway, but the point being is, is you know, we're solving those problems. You know, Bucks players, we signed huge amounts of players this year to the league, if, uh, which is which is more so. And, and look, it is a great filter. I mean, even when I was at Doncaster with Mike, we signed Jack DeAndle, um, You know, one year out of Cardiff or, or Uick as it was then, nobody knew him at all. He's ex the captain.
2: Um, but we're solving other people's problems and there's still this funding issue. So who who should run the league? Who should run the league as it stands or who should run it in my mo- in my model? Yeah. How do we
1: make? Because at the moment we're not in charge of our commercial destiny. You know, we're not in charge of any governance,
2: really. No, I, I, I take your point. But let's go back to your first point, which is about funding. Funding is inadequate. The, the current funding level is inadequate. Um, and. Although, although I am very mindful that you, you can't win the RFU, you know because you know people say, well, you need to spend more on women's rugby. Well, yeah, but you need to spend more on championship rugby yeah, yeah. but what about grassroots yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and schools and oh, and don't forget the national team and we, and we want the A team back and anything you, you know hold on a minute, yeah there's an opportunity cost to all of this, you know for every dollar you spend on one thing, by definition you haven't spent it on another. Having said that, I think I said right at the top of the show, I fundamentally believe that you have to have a viable second tier because I think all grown-up sports do. And it's, it's it's really a question of how you do that. I don't think just saying, well, here you are, here's a let, – let's make up a number, right? Here's a million pounds per club. Do what you like, right? I don't think that's – ever coming back, and 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 frankly, nor should it, okay? My argument would be, and I don't want to try to repeat myself because it'll get boring for people, my argument is if you want a functioning second tier, you need to have a managed closed league at the top and at and, the and second tier too. Uh, and if that means, for example, because in a development league, and, this, and people won't like this either, but in a development league, you've got a geographical prerequisite as well. So if you are going to be a development league, it's quite important you cover the whole country right now. That won't happen with open uh, promotion relegations between level two and level three, because you you will, at the moment we have a system where if somebody comes along, and I have to be careful because we should be very grateful for the patrons and the people who put a lot of money into the game, but you can effectively come along anywhere, And I'll say something I've said many, many times, because I'm never popular in West London anyway. But you know, I don't care how, how good Ealing are. There was a reason why Wasp left, left West London. And there's a reason why other clubs still struggle in West London. It's because the market is oversupplied. That's really unfortunate, right? So, but it doesn't mean that you just... In the same way... But if we leave it up to the market, clubs will cluster south. They will. I mean, it's it's, inevitable. You'll get the odd exception, but that you look at the you look at the centre of gravity of the championship in the last twenty years, it's come south, right? And it's come south. And and you look at the the Premiership. You know, we lost Yorkshire. There's real interesting noises coming out of the sale, and Newcastle is always a struggle. Now, that's true of rugby union. When you know, there's a whole host of reasons why that's the case. Partly rugby league, partly the strength of football in the big northern cities. But we, my argument would be, we need to have a model that addresses those historic weaknesses uh, and allows us to put a strong underpinning underneath the 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 sort of the showpiece and in meaning that the Premiership, and then over time grow it out. So, who makes these changes, Mark? Who makes them? Well. You, you, the only the, the only the group that could make the changes is is prl but they're a harder group to get to act strategically because until very recently one of the weaknesses of prl was there was hardly any resource in the middle it was an unusual league uh, that the center and it's because of how it was set up back in 97 it was set up as a an entity to hold the commercial rights of the get of the of the clubs of the 12 clubs back. Was it 12 in those days? Can't remember. Anyway, it was set up not as a governing regulatory body. That wasn't meant to be its purpose. It was set up to hold the commercial rights. And I understood that at the time. But of course, we then went into this huge sort of war uh, for, for, for many, many years. And they, it's starting to be realised actually you can't run a league just as a, a special purpose vehicle for commercial rights, you've got to regulate it, you've got to govern it so we've got this ridiculous idea at the moment whereby the RFU nominally does the fit and proper person test for the league, well I don't know, I don't know another league in the world that does that you, you do your own you know, if you're if, if we're, in this, we're still in this ridiculous hybrid but in answer to your di- direct question I think it's the PRLs more able to do it given what it controls, but it's harder to get a consensus in PRL because you only need three clubs to say no to anything and it doesn't happen. So getting a consensus in PRL is really difficult. RFU technically is easier because it's a hierarchical structure, but they don't have – but they've got to – They've got to get the Premiership on side to make significantly um, significant reform, uh, and then you're back in your circle. Of, that's a really difficult group to to control. And then if, if if they
1: were if that were to happen, and you have those two structures, who runs them both? PRL?
2: Oh, I would I would I would probably then run them. I would probably run them together. If I'm honest, I think you've got to align the interests. I'd, I'd have I'd have I would have. You know, and then you'll get the same arguments from level three. If you close off level two, you'll go, oh, yeah, there's no ambition. Yeah, all right. Well, but you, but you just have to wear that you're never going to please all the people all the
1: time. So I'm conscious, Mark, that I, me and you could probably spend a lot on the detail and governance. But I, I do want Mike because, well, because there's actually Mike, when I guess several things happened last year, from the funding cuts remaining in place post COVID to um, the absolute kind of I don't want to say disgrace because it was very confused in how it happened, but the <laughs> due promotion of Elin or Doncaster, who were both in a fight, and unfortunately the, the kind of minimum standards and the conversations that, that were misled at best um, in the changes that were being made. And we, we created a podcast on the back of, of that and a few other things where Mike made probably a pretty, pretty vocal, almost supporter-led appeal and it is how a lot of championship fans feel and it is how a lot of championship owners feel and that is why is this closed door and and albeit it's not closed officially yet it's just heavily ajar and cemented with concrete at the bottom but why on earth should sports clubs not have or not be able to have that ambition now I'm gonna let Mike kind of ask that in a more <laughs> in more detailed or more passionate way
0: I think, the point, I think the point that you get at is, you know, in terms of, I think when you take something as romantic as sports and you cross it with commercial endeavours, you're always going to have two sort of ambitions that are going to be at odds with each other. As you've referenced, the the country's premier sport is, is, is football, which has a very sort of clear way to the top and sort of way back down if you are unsuccessful. And I think <clears throat> everything you said today, Mark, I think, and I've sat here and listened, makes a whole lot of sense. I've almost found myself, well... Two, two commercial leagues, sorry, two professional leagues or development and a professional league locked off can make a lot of sense. But I think it also sort of raises a lot of questions. I think there's a complete lack of fairness in that approach. And do you know what, life isn't fair and perhaps it's not the way to go, but why should the 12 or 13 sides that are at the top of this tree currently who have repeatedly shown failings in their own commercial endeavours, in their own management of funds and their own operations be the ones that are cemented into that position when they have had for decades imminently better support from a sort of a governing body that has funded them to the tune of, of, of a much greater amount than the sort of leagues below and even the teams that you've referenced that have now dropped down the pyramid. Uh, and why is there that sort of that, that almost airborne right to the top flight? And if we were to close it, and you were, as you had to say, block it for five years and you know with five years good behavior you can maybe make an appeal to come back up um but sort of where's the justice and what what's the sort of meritocracy for clubs retaining that top flight status and again you could repeat this question between tiers two and three you know or but what what's the basis or what's the? there's obviously some clubs where it's obvious all...
2: okay yeah the basis is is quite straightforward um and um, it's because it gives you the best chance it doesn't give you a guarantee right it gives you the best chance to grow your sport and my overwhelming sort of motivation is to make this sport bigger both at international level european level and um uh, and domestically Uh, ironically it means all playing fewer games but we won't go down that route my argument would be, look around the world at the at the, at the fast growing leagues, the majority, the vast majority are closed. So the IPL, the great success story of the first twenty years of this century in sport, bar none. i mean from 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 a standing start, they've now got higher broadcast revenues than the than the Premier League. That's an extraordinary achievement, right? An extraordinary achievement. The last ones that went last month went higher than the than, than the last uh, EPL rides. Now, is that just because they're a closed league, but an expansionary closed league? Let's not forget, they've added new teams through their history. Okay? No, it's not, but it's part of the reason. You know, there are very, very few sports other than football, right? And that's a, 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 a historic thing, that have promotion and relegation you'd be hard pushed to come up with more than one or two others they are very very few and far between because you none of the american sports have it none of the australian sports have it most none of the cricket leagues have it so for team sports promotion and relegation is the exception rather than the rule and the reason it's the exception rather than the rule, in my opinion just my opinion is that it makes it much harder to grow. But because we're a football nation, we are predominantly a football nation, and that happens to be the system that football uses, despite an awful lot of, um, I won't go into the there's some interesting stuff going around now, it's because of the dominance of the UEFA Champions League. Now you're getting people like Paris Saint-Germain and Bayern Munich and Olympiacos winning winning it year after year after year after year. It's incredibly predictable. Uh, and that's what happened when market forces are not regulated. I think we get carried away because that's what football does. And it's the exception rather than the rule. And I just don't think it's a very effective system if you want to grow your sport, which is really what drives me. I think of, uh, it's,
0: it's a fascinating point, but I think the the difference, I guess, with a lot of those leagues that you referenced was that there was not a well-established league structure sort of prior to creating a top flight, do you know what I mean? The IPL, it wasn't
2: well. In well, the NRL started in 1908. So, uh, in terms of the New South Wales Rugby League and the Queensland Rugby League, so they've been going for 115 years. So, I think they've got a reasonable track record. County Championship, which is 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 effectively two close leagues, that's been going since goodness knows when. And they so that was
0: finite. At the, you know, you wouldn't ever have a club site that
2: would promote it into a county championship. Yeah, but you've got counties that can't that that don't get in, like Hertfordshire and Dorset and Devon. I mean, it, it, you know, there are counties that aren't in the county championship and never have been and never will be. So my argument is that it again it comes down to this sort of if you just leave it up to the market. See, I don't think promotion and relegation is, is romantic at all. Well, no, it has romantic elements. That's unfair. It has romantic elements. But, it's, but in its heart, it's very market-driven. It just says, because if you, if you take that to its logical conclusion, don't have a salary cap. Just let, just let Steve Lansdowne win it every year, because he's got more money than anyone else, if he's prepared to spend it, and nobody could compete. Right Now, that's what you've got in football. Right? The reason it, it sort of works in football is it's played in so many countries, but nobody can dominate Europe because every single world class football player is playing in one of four leagues. So by definition, it becomes competitive. We can't possibly ever do that in rugby. So well, there's, there's no salary cap in the champ, Mark, so there's is, is some benefit in that for anyone.
1: I think there needs to be a minimum salary cap rather than uh, the, the, the other way around. Well,
2: uh, well, I, I, well, no, I agree with you. And, and, and actually, you know, again, if you look around, you know, the, the one we used to use, the, which was the, you know, the Queensland Cup, there was a salary cap in the Queensland Cup that meant all the Queensland Cup sides were viable. None of them ever went. None of them were bust. And, and as I said, on one of them's just been taken up because they're an incredibly well-run club, and they're in a decent area where they th- we think that they think there's a market, and they found some investors and they put a really good bid together, and now they're going to get five years. No, no, they're going to have it in perpetuity. Uh, I'm not sure we're quite ready for that. They've got a license now in perpetuity, right? Now there were two other um, there were two other groups that were trying to get it. And the NRL ran a tender and they they, they made the decision. And in a few years' time, they'll go to 18 because 17 is a stupid number. And the debate now is, well, do we go for an absolutely new market like Perth? Or do we put another team in Queensland or another team in New Zealand? And to my mind, that is a much more sensible way to run a sport than just to just say, well, I tell you what, who's got the biggest multimillionaire? Right. And they're going to win. And you, I I just don't think that's the way to do it. So what about,
1: we we keep talking about almost cutting the rest of the game apart and and kind of sealing off. And what about cutting the premiership apart and telling them to look after themselves? And then the championship becomes the top of the pyramid that the RFU funding. And, you know, they have to stand on their own two feet like the IPL did.
2: Well, I mean, I think we're not far away from that, Garth. I mean, take a my, take a club, my own, my old club that I know quite well. Now, so, so Harlequins uh, turnover about twenty six million now. Now where we're out of COVID and, and sort of leave the COVID years a slightly complete aberration. But Harlequins turnover about twenty six million now, and I think their central funding is largely from PRL, but a bit of, but but even with the union money as well. But it's mainly league generated money but there's there's the eqp bit and there's the academy a little bit of academy money in it and then the whole sort of um player release thing which obviously dropped massively last year because it was related to turnover which was interesting i think they make 21 million of their own of the 26 and i think then the the league bit comes in with another i mean to be honest for most of the bigger clubs you could take you could and they won't do it of course you could say well give us the england players for free and it wouldn't, and even if they agree to that, which they wouldn't, and understandably say, so, say, well, we owe the contract, you know, they played there out. We are you chose not to be the employer. We we are the employer. If you want us to release them, there's a fee. But even if you theoretically took that away for the bigger clubs, it would not be world changing. No,
1: I, I know what you're saying, Matt. Although hypothetically, if we played that game, then I, I think it's probably circa six million from some of the clubs we I've spoke to. Well, actually that's that's
2: near enough the salary gap in the squad so yeah but don't yeah but you are talking about that's mostly broadcast revenue that the league itself generates so uh, you know i don't think you can count that as that is standing on their own two feet isn't it i mean that's money they generate as a league i mean that they're, they're not that's not that's not money coming from an international game or anything like that uh, absolutely
1: no i look and i think we we agree on the you know the big piece around the kind of we Won't get into player salaries and the inflation in that area and the difference between the champ and the, the Prem. I've got some because I'm conscious of time, I've also got some kind of quick fire ones out of interest just to, to smooth some on. But so otherwise, I know we could we could speak for hours. So, um,
2: championship full time or part time at the moment under this model, no chance, no choice, no choice but to be a hybrid. Okay, and what do you think it should be? Uh, I should, I think it should be, uh, I think it should be. Semi pro, actually. But I, think that, but I think there should be a minimum wage as well. I think it should be I, should be, I think it should be a minimum wage in the championship. And actually, when I say a hybrid, I think what most clubs would, would end up doing under a better run system is they would have a core of full time players and some part time. I cannot ever see it, a totally full time squad being, well, certainly in the next 10 years, being financially viable. Fire's tough with you, Mark, and quick fire is tough with you, Mark.
1: Quick fire is tough. How many clubs should be in the Prem and how many clubs should be in the Champ?
2: Ideally, start from scratch 10.
1: In both. Mm.
2: Mm. But it won't happen. But ideally, 10.
1: Uh, we've talked about money and this might not be as easy. But how much
2: does a Championship club need from the central pot? Oh. Well, I think, and again, the clubs do vary, of course and that's that's again half the problem isn't it is that you can you, you can get a club coming up and all they do is spend money on the team and they get into the championship and you know i think if you if you had a minimum wage 20, you need a million you need a million but there's a lot you got to you there's a lot you got to do to pay that back you got there's got to be a value for that and and that's got to be well, well worked through but i think 10 teams with a grant of a million is probably a good investment and when you consider the largest amount has been 660,
1: and the current amount is, south for 150. Does the championship and the exec and the people running it, does there need to be independence And in the current situation?
2: Uh, in, sorry, independence from whom, sorry? Uh, well, it's
1: not an interview, Mark, because we couldn't afford you in the champ with our money. But <laughs> the, Does it require an individual to, or, or, or agency or somebody else to
2: support that growth I, I until you get the model right i don't quite see the point i think it's much more important to get the model right and then when you get the model right then you can look at where you can allocate your resources and at what point does that that kind of
1: i guess and without saying too much there's been lots of collaborative work there's been lots of work to try and get the championship value higher at what point mm. you know do mm. clubs kind of say well Actually, you know, I, I saw recently the RFU have just sold the A cup for level five down, Papa John's sponsorship. Um, but there is still no commercial sponsorship of the championship. And and look, I get it. You know, we're probably the under 12's kit bag in some ways. And every penny that comes in sponsorship to the RFU, to the championship, needs to be moved on to the clubs. Um, whereas probably they're, they're able to keep investment that is within competitions ran directly by themselves Um, but at what point does that you know because you know it is crazy that the the tier two no longer has any commercial partners and we're not in charge of our destiny to be able to sell it either
2: no i I can see your point there i mean it it, it depends at what point what because what what kind of assuming you're going to split it however many ways at what point does it become material in other words you know let's say a central deal is a central deal worth half a million material once you cut it up that many, or because that's, it's quite hard to demonstrate, you know, I mean, I remember when you tried, it was tried to position it as a sort of like sort of earthy grass, not grassroots, but sort of real sort of not community either, but I can't think of the right word. And it sort of worked for a little while yeah, well not quite heritage because I think about you know what I mean, a sort of an earthy keeping it real, which you know, it's not a bad proposition, but look, it's it's like everything else. If you can't turn it into a broadcast proposition, and at the moment I just don't think there's the market in this country, in England, it's really hard. And that's why I come all the way around to the big, where we were at the top of the show, which is I think you've got to change this raison d'etre. I think it's got to become you need a second tier, we do, we provide this, this and this but to do it properly, we require a level of funding that is not unreasonable and this is what we can give in return and that might require it becoming smaller, it might require it because obviously smaller requires less funding, you know the lo- the bigger you make the league, the, the harder it gets to, to financially support it, you're feeding more mouths um, and, and that's where I would, that's where I'd try and position it, you know, if I had a magic wand and I was running the RFU and PRL combined today. That's what I'll be trying to get.
0: I'm going to wrap things up there. Guys, it's been very nice to be the first listener to this podcast between you. I think I've learned an awful lot listening to it. I'm sure our guests, when they do listen
2: to it, will also. So thank you, Mark, for your time. Ah, uh, it's a pleasure, mate. It's a pleasure. It's um, you know, I feel quite strongly that we've got to find a a role for the second tier that is, you know, linked to how it's funded. Because look, no sport that I'm ever that I've ever come across has prospered without, and it's always struggled with this thing, you know, is our second tier commercially viable? Yes or no. And depending on the answer to that question, then, right. So how do we structure it? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's always one of those really difficult, difficult even the Premier league, they flip flop between a reserve grade and under 23s and they, you know, they really can't quite work out which is gonna do the best for them. And I just think we've been a bit, you know, we sort of, I think it's been shown the last 25 years that at the moment, there is not a commercial market. And therefore I think you've got to flip it. And that doesn't mean there isn't a commercial market in some towns, because you know, Bedford run a great, no, 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 not just because you're here. Um, Bedford run a terrific um, afternoon. You know, it's, 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 it's fantastic. But we haven't got 10 towns like Bedford in the country. We, we just haven't. And I'm wishing we won't make it sad. No,
1: and uh, look, you know, it's, it's difficult. We're obviously sat against the picture of Worcester and Watson and thinking, Christ alive, these championship clubs haven't got any problems. In fact, some of them are very sustainable. Um, you know, Richmond, I'd argue, a great model of their own club.
2: Yeah, they are. But again, they're sitting in one of the strongest rugby union catchment areas in the country. You know, try and replicate that in Norwich, is what I'd say. I don't think you can. Anyway, it's been a pleasure, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. And thanks for the invite. That was the
0: Championship Clubs podcast. Be sure to come back in a fortnight's time and follow us on social media at
1: Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter.